0: today is Didak Keralt from Yale. And we're super excited to talk to Didak because he does really, really interesting work and in fact has a book coming out on the relationship between international finance and state building. And what really attracted our attention was a chapter in that forthcoming book about collateralized lending during the first era of sovereign bond lending from the roughly the early 19th to the early 20th centuries. And we've had some conversations about collateralized lending on the podcast before, including with Noel Maurer in an earlier episode. But we find these, these pledges of assets or revenues to back uh, bond lending really, fascinated, really fascinating. And we're also fascinated by the fact that they've disappeared for the most part in the modern era, except um except perhaps for some Chinese overseas loans. Anyway, has spent countless hours in the archives at Guildhall Library collecting prospectuses from sovereign bonds issued in London and gathering information on collateral pledges and other terms in these bond contracts. And we wanted to talk to him about his research and his findings, including his thoughts on how these secured loans from the 19th century still Have reverberations that are being felt today. So so welcome, Didak. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So can we begin with a little bit of background? You're interested in the relationship between external finance and state building. And you know, simplistically, I think my assumption would be that anything countries can do to get cheap credit, at least within some pretty broad Parameters, you know, anything they can do to get cheap credit is a, a good thing. Um, you know, the borrower can invest in infrastructure, can do all of these things without um, uh, sort of heaping excessive debt on future generations. But your research points to maybe a more complicated relationship between external finance Mm -hmm. and uh, state building. And I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about that as a a way of um, uh, sort of providing some context for our discussion.
1: Yes, of course. So so external finance can be a a good thing. Um, I don't dispute that, but it does, it doesn't always have to be the case. And uh, in order to, Assess uh, the, the the impact of external finance. Um, we should we should focus on the economic and political consequences, right? So probably uh, all your uh, audience knows that um, that in the nineteenth century, a period that I call the the bond era, um, a large proportion of, of external finance um, uh, went in the in the form of sovereign bonds uh, rather than FDI. FDI is a more modern phenomenon, something that um, uh, actually uh, grew after World War I. So so the question is how governments use the the monies that they borrowed overseas and uh, uh, how we can assess the the economic and, and political impact. So, from an economic point of view, um, it is not always that uh, it is not obvious that external finance is invested in the in the right place, right? So, we can focus, for instance, in in the case of uh, railroads, which is basically the paradigm of external finance in the in the nineteenth century. So uh, well-designed railroads should, should be like a fantastic opportunity to grow an economy because it, uh, it, they come with a lot of social savings. They, in, they potentially integrate markets, they make exports cheaper and also grow the, the local economy. That's uh, what we would expect, right? But uh, not so well-designed that investment might create underdevelopment. And that thesis is actually defended by uh, John Cosworth in a beautiful book titled Growth Against Development. And in that book, he shows that uh, railroad investment in Mexico Actually expanded the aggregate demand. It basically made the, the, the a, a bigger economy, but it did very little to stimulate the national industry, the so-called uh, backward linkages of, of railroad, right? So once we, we look at other cases, we see that the, the 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 impact of the of the railroad in terms of the economic performance is actually mixed. So it, it was very good for growing the, the Argentinian and Brazilian economies, right? And the the the, the, the contribution to those. Those economies were, uh, was huge, but uh, it did very little in Peru, in Venezuela, China, or Spain, uh, to to name to name a few. So, so, so the reasons of for why those investments were not so positive in some parts of the world uh, might relate to pure cost effectiveness, or also how the governments actually decided what kind of investment, what kind of line. To prioritize, and that brings us to the political consequences of external finance, right? So, uh, and the, 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 here I think that uh, this is where political science can can uh, illuminate uh, some of this debate. In political science, um, we find that. Uh, improvements in, in tax capacity usually go hand in hand with advances in political institutions. So rulers uh, in, in early modern Europe, for instance, were able to tax elites and also citizens, uh, but though in, in exchange, those received a political rights. And that gave basically uh, what was the rise, that was the rise of, of representative institutions. So the question is that external finance uh, might uh, preempt that kind of fiscal contract between rulers and taxpayers. Uh, Rulers might be able to basically um, uh, dodge uh, those kind of uh, political, having to grant those political uh, grants by uh, raising uh, bonds overseas, by basically relying on external finance. And again, depending on how they invest that money and depending on whether they uh, uh, articulate at the same time uh, infrastructure uh, engaging in the tax administration, in, in basically the state apparatus we might end up in very different uh, trajectories some might be conducive to state building some might be conducive to dead traps and this is basically what i what i study in in the book so this is basically i know a very long answer but um the point of of of, of this of this uh, of this answer is to um, uh, basically um, um, make a, or, or give a full understanding of the positive and potential potentially negative consequences of external finance.
2: So, Dita, this your book is fascinating, and I'm looking forward to it coming out in part so that Mark and I can use it in our class uh, for our discussions with the students. And we have both been particularly fascinated by your chapter on you talk about the sort of debt for equity uh, aspects of it, and uh, Mark and I will probably ask you about constitutional uh, promises of tax mm-hmm. revenues and th- things like that. But when you think about the effect of external lending on development, what would you say about the effect of external lending uh, with collateral? Is is there? Even there, is there sort of a mixed message or would we conclude that no, actually uh, giving collateral subject to enforcement possibility actually was uh, unambiguously a good thing?
1: Yes, so um, so um, the, 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 this collateral, uh, had um, clearly positive effects on, on the interest rates that um, countries um, paid for, for the money. And basically, if you think about um, long-term economic development, you want to pay as little as possible in interest rate, right? So these developing nations have a lot of expenses. They need to put the money um, to actually grow the economy, grow the infrastructure. So the less they pay in interest rates, the better uh but 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 that uh low interest rate came with some risks and those risks were that um in case of default um the the the, the pledges might be uh, seized by uh, external by uh, foreign uh, bond holders and uh, when that was the case um, it is not um, as elaborated in, in one of the chapters of, of the book it's not uh, the case actually I have not found any particular example. Uh, in which external bond hold, holders uh, in charge of uh, the, these local assets, and in particular um, the branches of the tax administration, the so-called receivership, actually helped to grow a more um, efficient administration. So at the end of the day, these receiverships acted more as an extractive mechanism, or um, that might have like a negative uh, um, connotation. They they served as, as as debt collection agencies. They were not. Not, um, part of a, a broad um, plan of, or, or an encompassing plan of building states, right? So, so these countries uh, raised money overseas. Uh, some of them paid and, and that uh, paid back, and, and, and that's, for instance, the case of Japan, like the, the poster boy of external finance. But others did not repay; they default. They defaulted, and then um, you see these uh, super sanctions, receiverships, uh, debt equity swaps uh, um, going on. And you see that these um, countries actually weakened their tax base over time because they were um, exchanging um, access, regaining access to international markets uh, for um, uh, granting these um, uh, money cows, the very few that they had, or to, to foreign investors. And that's the risk of external finance. And um, the point of this book is to make us aware that uh, cheap money doesn't come free, that it comes with, with some risks. And in understanding... So
2: just yes. um, on that, just to, to, to maybe clarify, although I think this mm-hmm. is where you're going. One of the themes that I've read about in some of the literature on sovereign debt, particularly... Uh, these uh, some of the very burdensome debt mm-hmm. uh, that justified gunboat diplomacy uh, is that uh, foreign governments used this lending as a mechanism uh, not to do investments uh, but to have a justification for taking over the countries. Um, mm-hmm or uh, for other political motives. And, you know, one of, you know, Egypt comes to mind. Uh, In Mm -hmm. fact, Mark and I were talking about Egypt and the British. uh, Mm -hmm. There there are countries in Latin America, uh, vis-a-vis the U.S., Haiti comes to mind with the U.S. loans and then the takeover. There seems to be so much political drama going on, so many of these loans that has to do with a geopolitical interest that can we really think, in, think just in terms of uh, the interest rates? And I guess this is sort of your theme. I'm, not, uh, I'm just asking you to elaborate more mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. tell me if I'm getting it wrong.
1: So yeah, so basically that's like the Hobson-Lenin hypothesis, right? Of of financial imperialism that um, there was a, a conscious, um, at um, basically strategy by European powers and European bankers to lend uh, to lend to these um, uh, weak, weakly institutionalized countries in the expectation of default, and that was basically the excuse to take over. Um, uh, so. In my reading of of how this market worked, um, I I have not found uh, conclusive enough evidence to support that hypothesis. Maybe with the exception of China, um, because uh, uh, chi- China was like um, o- o- uh, loans to to China uh, were like um, a different a different animal, and, and you see that. Uh, that there is a, a, a conscious attempt to, to basically weaken weaken the the, the the emperor and 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 take take over the, the some branches of the tax administration and there, there is also a scramble for concessions but leaving uh, china aside i think of these pledges basically as a, as a mechanism to reduce risk so there is no big agenda uh, to 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 use uh, loans as a as a diplomatic uh tool as, a, as, a, as an imperial uh, tool but basically they they serve to reduce uh to reduce uncertainty uh and the risk uh, associated with uh lending to countries that had uh that lacked reputation or had a, a poor reputation uh, that said um I, I think of this project as a, as a contribution to the literature and not the last uh, the last word in uh, this debate. And I and I'm 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 open to different interpretations. And I'm open, and I'm happy if someone actually finds a clear uh, link or clear evidence that supports the uh, Hobson-Lenin hypothesis.
0: Can I ask um, a question that I think might be on some some listeners' minds, having to do with how you try to isolate the risk of intervention, sort of the risk of a takeover of, um, you know, a customs collection point, for instance, which is sort of the the security provided by the loan, from a a different benefit that these collateral pledges offered, which which, um, I understand to be priority, so if I'm, sort of understanding the history, right, it was sort of taken for granted that bondholders who benefited from one of these collateral pledges would be first in line when restructuring talks happened. And and Mm -hmm. that would have some independent value, I suppose, even if there was effectively zero prospect of a state takeover of the, the borrower's revenue institutions. So how do we separate the those two possible benefits and and figure out which is responsible for the the premium that you identify
1: yeah that is an excellent question and um, I don't have a, a definite answer to to it I would love to tell you uh, uh, in that particular loan the expectation was to take over the like the customs um, um, office, uh, whereas in that other loan, the expectation was to be first in line, to be basically a, a, a senior, a senior um, uh, um, um, borrower uh, lender. Um, um, the the point that I that I uh, that I try to make is that. Um, Taking over uh, was way more uh, taking over national assets and the t- tax administration was more prevalent than we often assume. And this is actually a, a result that is uh, already uh, made clear in Michener and Wayden Mayer, right? What I try to, what I try to do is to expand the, the like the, the data that that uh, shows um, evidence that is consistent with with that with that process and 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 also reflect on the consequences of um, uh, receiverships for long term state building and uh, political uh, development.
2: So did I. If I could ask you to elaborate in a little bit more, in, in your book, you talk in a very nice and clear fashion about the different types of collateralized uh, relationships. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm wondering, based on your empirical analysis of the, the lowering of borrowing costs by using these kinds of collateral or super sanctions, uh, mechanisms. If a student, or Mark and I are your students here, uh, were to ask from that experience, can we say something about which types of lending techniques worked better and which ones didn't work at all? Would you be able to, can we draw some conclusions? Because I'm trying to think, so when I think of railroads, for example, and I think of the experience uh, with using railroads as collateral in the U.S. Uh, in the great era of the Great Depression, it really didn't work well because giving some, you know, once the railroad went bankrupt, giving somebody like a section of rail was utterly useless. Like, well, what are you going to do with the rail that goes to nowhere? And yeah we have these major bankruptcies and a lot of corruption in the resolution of those bankruptcies. So, I mean, you started with the railroads and I always think railroads are the classic example of a collateral system that really just disintegrated because the collateral sucked. Uh, So anyway, that's a long winded way of saying um, what worked and what didn't work and do we know uh, why? Um, Yes, that
1: again, excellent question. And um, I I don't have data on on this. My sense is that uh, lenders um, were more favorable to um, um, uh, having um, uh, sections of the tax administration collateralized uh, because that basically was uh, something that already existed. The problem about uh, uh, pledging railroads is that the, those railroads usually didn't exist. I mean, those railroads were fund, uh, funded by the uh, loans uh, and, um, under which uh, or by which uh, the railroads were collateralized. So basically, the, 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 the lenders had to make an uh, effort, uh, no matter what, if they wanted to, um, uh, to recover um, the, 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 the investment. So um, what worked and what didn't work? What I can tell you is that uh, sinking funds, which is also one can think of sinking funds as a, as a mechanism to uh, reduce a risk, didn't seem to um, um, reduce uh, the spread based, based on, on, on my, my analysis, right? I, I also uh, coded uh, sinking funds uh, along with, uh, with, with pledges. Uh, so um, this, there seems to be something about pledges about the uh, stream of revenue that comes uh, with pledges that seems to be more attractive um, uh, for lenders than a sinking fund, right? And this is the actually the only source of evidence that makes me suspicious about um, the 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 lending Hobson-Lenin hypothesis being true, right? So, if the purpose was basically to minimize to minimize risk, you should not really see any difference in the effect of sinking funds and pledges on the interest rate. But apparently, lenders really um, uh, uh, trusted more on the ability of pledges to reduce the the interest rate, meaning that they seem. I mean, based on the data, it's like lenders. Um, belief that, that the uh, stream of revenue that would come with uh, with with taking over a, a national asset was bigger than uh, that that the, the returns of of, of, uh, sinking, uh, of, uh, of a sinking of um, of uh, fund. Well, let's take a
0: really short break and then um, come back and chat a little bit more with with Dilla. can i ask a, a sort of a simplistic question about the politics the domestic politics for the borrower underlying these clauses it seems to me like if i'm a politician who agree, pledges some important revenue stream to lenders and the loan goes bust and i'm still in office i'm going to have a lot of really, really unhappy um, people, people who are mad at me for doing something so stupid that sacrificed an important part of the country's sovereignty. And so I'm mm-hmm. I'm just wondering why you think a politician would make a promise like this. Were the, the benefits large enough in terms of a reduction in borrowing costs? Is there some kind of political agency cost story in play here? Mm -hmm. What is it that
1: leads a politician to agree to a promise like this? Uh, Yes, sure. Uh, So so the costs and, and benefits of external finance should not be considered in the in the abstract, but relative to the costs and benefits of mobilizing domestic resources, right? So the the ruler has to fund government, and the ruler needs to find uh, uh, ways, streams of of revenue, um, uh, or funds to actually uh, meet uh, meet those those needs. So when when the rulers renounce to external finance, uh, they need to rely on domestic taxes, among other things, right? But if they if they rely on taxes, they they th- those taxes are hard to implement, right? So uh, they, they consume uh, scarce resources. You, you need to hire an army of, of tax officials. You need to actually reach to to, to every town in, in, the, in your territory. Uh, and also the taxes uh, might require granting powers to taxpayers. And that limits executive discretion, um, probably on a permanent basis. And rulers do not like to share powers, right? So, so the ruler um, has this dilemma. Um, basically he or she, Needs to decide whether um, uh, she serves a domestic or a foreign master, right? And and each of I mean and each course of action uh, comes with uh, costs and benefits uh, that might potentially affect the trajectories of state building and future uh, access to external finance. So, um, uh, what 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 I do in the in the, in the theoretical uh, chapter of the book is to um, um, identify. Uh, key conditions under which external finance uh, is um, preferred over, uh, over uh, domestic mobilization of resources, uh, mainly when the rulers are more likely to accept these uh, risks of being uh, intervened by a foreign power. And basically what this discussion shows is that countries with weak state capacity, uh, countries with authoritarian institutions and high turnover in office will be more likely to uh, assume the risks associated with external finance, these risks of foreign intervention. So uh, in in thinking about why would they subject themselves to these uh, as it is usually considered, national humiliation of pledging um, uh, national assets, of allowing uh, the 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 men in black, right, in the in the in the in the financial crisis in Europe, to uh, come over if things go south. Well, the thing is that not every ruler is as forward looking as we tend to assume they are, right? Some of them uh, know that they will be around maybe a few months, maybe a few years, right? But they will uh, uh, basically leave the mess for some future ruler uh, and, and that will be somebody else's problem.
2: So Dijak, um, I wanna ask, bring our conversation to the modern era to ask a question that Mark and I have often asked of each other without much success, but, but a question that we have asked our friends who work in, sovereign debt issuance. And uh, I used to work as a lawyer many, many years ago uh, on actual sovereign debt transactions. And I remember having this question even back then. And the question was, why don't modern sovereigns in the post 1990s uh, sovereign debt market use uh, collateralized lending since Mm -hmm. it seems to work so well in the domestic corporate context, including sometimes in the domestic corporate cross-border context. And the answer I would get from the senior lawyers who were not interested in my question uh, was, look, um, we learned after the defaults of the Great Depression and the defaults uh, that happened after World War II or during World War II that." all of that collateralized lending was not worth the paper it was printed on. I mean, literally, that's what they would say. They, li- they like the quote about not worth the paper was printed on. But mm-hmm. your research and uh, the other research of people like uh, Ben Chabot and uh, Veronica Santorosa uh, seems to make the claim that, you know, maybe the conventional wisdom of these lawyers I was talking to is wrong and that collateralized lending of various types, uh, including sinking funds, uh, Mm -hmm. could have a benefit today. But that then raises the question, uh, why don't we see it? It, Mm -hmm. it, You know, market, uh, market forces should result in us seeing it and the only time i've seen it in the modern era is uh, either in some of these uh, chinese loans uh, to uh, developing countries where it's not really clear where, whether china would actually uh, enforce them or in the recent uh, uh, venezuelan bond that ha- had pledged some of its uh, some of the assets in its oil company and that in, has turned out to be a complete disaster in terms of litigation. So sorry for the long-winded question, but why aren't we doing it today?
1: Yes. So so in 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 the book, and I'm sorry, I always refer back to the book. <laughs> but I I, I have um, basically a long discussion about the 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 ability of bondholders to. Um, uh, enforce um, those pledges right because the question is why would you ask for a pledge if you cannot enforce it, right so the conditions uh, that that and i'm happy to elaborate on those but, but the conditions that that uh, existed in the 90th century um, that allowed uh, these European investors to uh, include uh, to make that uh, those pledges be included in the in the um, in the loan contracts and enforce them in case of the fall. Uh, do not necessarily hold nowadays, and and I think that's a key explanation or a key potential explanation for this uh, weakening of the uh, private bondholders' uh, bargaining power via the uh, sovereign uh, borrowers is the presence of international financial institutions such as the such as the IMF or the the World Bank, right? So. Uh, if if the terms that 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 the private uh, financiers, basically the private banks, um, 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 ask um, um, to uh, sovereign uh, borrowers are too onerous. Uh, it is likely that these uh, developing nations are going to knock on the door of international financial institutions, right? And because they might impose some conditionality, but those institutions do not uh, do not uh, demand uh, the, the 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 pledge of of national assets, right? And when we look at the data, actually we see that uh, less than ten percent of sovereign loans nowadays are purely uh, purely uh, private. Most of them uh, uh, include uh, private banks and international financial institutions, and um, I I would uh, recommend uh, all your um, uh, audience to to have a look at an incredible uh, nice book by Jonas Bunte. It's a recent book titled "Raise the Debt," uh, and in that book, basically, he shows that that the evidence of of that of how small the market of uh, purely um, uh, private uh, loans has become over time, and I think that. Um, uh, basically, the main the main reason for that is that international financial institutions offer offer mm, less strict uh, uh, less strict conditions, and uh, part of that is not requesting um,
2: uh, pledges. So, Dita, just I'm I'm sorry, I, I think I am a little bit confused. So, when I think of just bonds, the things that mm-hmm. Mark and I study most of our time, sovereign bonds that are issued by emerging market nations. Now, whether they're issued in the New York market or in the European market, all of the investors are either uh, purely private or they are uh, public institutions, like a sovereign wealth fund that is acting in a private capacity. (laughs) And there's no... um, you know, there, there's no official sector institution yes. that's involved, except if the country goes into sort of a liquidity crisis. So, um, so I'm not sure I understand the, the connection between, like, why don't these purely private uh, debt instruments uh, request collateral and and You know, Venezuela is not a good example, but certainly we saw in that uh, Venezuelan uh, bond that was collateralized with um, majority stake in their oil company that they were able to. Didn't I mean, I'm not Mark can tell us he's the expert on this, whether they succeeded in getting anything, but um, sorry, I'm just just asking for more clarification.
0: And did Mitu, Mitu cut out for me? He may have cut out for you, but I think yes. he was just giving an example of a what appears to be a successful enforcement of a collateral pledge. But but
1: I'll butt out of it now. Uh, yeah. So so so. yeah, So my, my point was that um, most of the external uh, financing of of. Uh, uh, developing nations nowadays uh, happens through official mechanisms. That 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 was my my main point. Uh, so yes, so uh, bonds uh, floated in 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 New York that is is private, but that's a small portion, and and the conditions um, in the purely private market uh, are not independent from the conditions that developing nations can uh, negotiate in the official sector. Yes, there are uh, instances in which um, developing nations knock on the IMF, uh, and that's a a liquidity uh, crisis as as, uh, uh, Mitu said, but um, they can also uh, in like normal times knock on the World Bank, for instance, to um, to fund um, uh, long-term Investment investment program a long term infrastructure, which is basically what they were doing in the 90th century, and and that that's basically my, my intuition that the existence of this official sector uh, does not uh, or weakens uh, the ability of bondholders of private bondholders or uh, basically banks to uh, raise um, or to impose uh, stricter conditions in in uh, sovereign in sovereign bonds. I, I hope I made myself uh, clear. That, that is,
0: I think I understand, although it seems um it seems hard from my kind of armchair perspective, thinking about Venezuela may actually be a good example, notwithstanding the the fact that they've actually used a bit of collateral collateralized mm-hmm. lending. But you know, you have what 80, 90 billion in bond debts. Maybe I'm underestimating it. The total amount of debt is much greater than that. But um, it's hard to believe they could have satisfied financing needs by tapping official sources i had I had assumed uh, that would not have been remotely possible but I suppose um the question really is whether official contracting templates are kind of um, setting standards even in private markets I think that's a really that's a really um uh, a really interesting question. I wonder though, can can we shift gears a little bit to, um, so th- there's a different sort of modern in- incarnation of this problem, which Me Too and I looked at a little bit um, with our friend Ugo Panizza in the context of some of the constitutional pledges that Euro area governments agreed to. So sort of a big, big reform in the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis. We should agree that um, holders of public debt are going to get priority over basically everyone, over mm-hmm. you know, pensioners, grandmothers, police, everything like that. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And we had trouble finding any pricing consequences of these promises. It was as if investors just simply didn't take them seriously at all. I wonder if it would be if the difference has to do with the the fact that these are simply a different kind of promise, a promise of priority rather than collateral pledges, or if in the modern era, enforcement is just so in question that these promises have no meaning whatsoever. I I, I don't know. I I just wonder whether you have given any thought to those kinds of priority promises that
1: we see in some modern contexts. Uh, uh yes so um the, the uh, here i'm i'm basically uh, is, is speculating uh, because i have not done uh, any research um on on this my sense is that some of these some of these um uh, constitutional reforms uh might have uh, uh, might be interpreted, um, uh, as a rhetorical, uh, uh, resource, uh, by, by, uh, by international investors. and uh, and, and here I'm, 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 I'm sure that, um, I'm, um, we might, it's not that I'm sure that we might not, we might not, uh, agree in interpreting, uh, how, uh, how these, uh, uh pledges were, were, uh, uh, phrased in, in the 19th century, but, um, um, for instance, um, I, I, what I think it could be a, a, um, a reasonable comparison is the difference between general pledges in the 19th century versus uh, specific pledges, right? So maybe uh, general pledges, which basically were expressions included in, in the loan contracts, uh, uh, which basically said, and we will use uh, uh, all uh, um Basically, we will use all our resources, fiscal resources, to to repay uh, the debt. It might be similar to some of these uh, constitutional clauses that uh, countries like Spain have adopted in in the recent past, and that investors prefer to see more specific, more specific um, uh, promises. Um, and for instance, in the case in the nineteenth century, I, I argue that. Um, one of the key differences between general and specific pledges uh, uh, um, is in the information that the specific pledges um, provided to the investor. So the specific pages uh, came with, as uh, with, um, usually a follow-up in the in the in the uh, long prospectus, uh, detailing the the yearly income of of the specific pledge, um, uh, the contribution to the export economy, uh, the operating cost, even the uh, additional uh, resources that would be invested in uh, uh, that particular infrastructure. And I think that uh, was that reduce the information asymmetry uh, for, for uh, borrowers. And uh, they could, I mean, with that new information, they could fine tune or calibrate better the, the risk of investing in that particular uh, uh, venture, right? And, and I think that for that particular reason, we can see uh, an effect in the interest rate of a specific pages that uh, we might not see in uh, general pledges or in constitutional promises.
2: So, DJ, uh, w- we have already taken up far too much of your time, but uh, I'm hoping that we can ask one last question. And um, may- okay, maybe it'll be a two-part question. But I'm—we've talked almost exclusively about sovereign lending, but in your wonderful. Uh, book, you talk about borrowing by the colonies and what that was like. And uh, it made me think about municipal borrowing today, meaning, uh, you know, borrowing by uh, regions of a state or uh, territories like Puerto Rico. Mark and I have spent a lot of time thinking about Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And here... Uh, official institutions like the IMF or the World Bank are not involved, and we see, at least in in municipal borrowing in the U.S., uh, much more use of pledges of streams of uh, tax revenues, for example, than Mm -hmm. we do in the sovereign context. So I'm wondering... um, whether A, you saw this in the context of the colonies borrowing. Uh, So for example, British colonies, I know they did a lot of uh, borrowing on the London market and probably was in your Guildhall uh, data set. I don't ever remember, for example, I looked at uh, Indian borrowing and a number of the African colonies. I I don't remember in the contract terms, any uh, pledge of revenues there but uh in Puerto Rico for example they pledge everything uh you know like literally university tuition receipts are pledged to some set of uh some set of investors and electricity receipts are pledged to another and sewage receipts uh I mean they've pledged everything and then you know maybe not paid anything but uh uh, you know, where does it work? Where does it not work? It continues to be the basic question. I'm wondering whether th- these other quasi-sovereign settings have insights uh, to add for us.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe Mark
2: will fix my question because it was so rambly.
1: So so um, uh, my, my answer would be also two, two parts. So um, I can confirm that, that pledges were unusual uh, for colonies. They were, they, they, they pledged, uh, very rarely uh, some specific um income stream but uh, most of the pledges were general right and there is a, a, a this this the empire effect um hypothesis in the in the economic history literature that basically claims that 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 um, colonies were treated as as, as provinces um uh, and and that uh, they really didn't have to do much in order to uh, raise raise loans uh because uh, the investors expected that any financial um, uh, turbulence would be uh, would be uh, compensated by some some uh, b- uh, bailout by by the by the metropole. Um, so, and actually, I see that that the very few pledges that that uh, colonies had do not really change the, the interest rate uh, with respect to the with with this with the municipal. Um, um, uh, pledges. And um, again, uh, I'm purely speculating here, maybe it has to do with this information asymmetry that I was uh, mentioning uh, earlier. Um, um, as, a, as, a, as an investor, you might have a good idea of whether uh, a country uh, is doing well uh, financially. There, there are international financial institutions that actually collect data on an annual basis, and one can one can. Um, uh, have a better, uh, a, a good idea of uh, whether they, they, the the country in a good or bad shape. With municipal, uh, with municipalities, with towns and regions, that information might not be as available um, uh, as, as 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 in the other case, and maybe that's why they have to uh, place uh, specific. Um, uh, sources of income, uh, detailing exactly how much they 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 um, um, uh, yield on a, on a yearly basis, and uh, adding any other additional information that might be of uh, use to calibrate the risk that uh, that lenders are assuming in f- uh, funding these these towns. But but again, I'm, I'm I'm purely speculating because I I, I have not um, uh, done uh, research on that particular on that particular topic. Well, we're happy we can get you to speculate because
0: that's most of what we do. So it's a, it's nice when we can uh, <laughs> encourage somebody um, with more rigorous uh, disciplinary chops to speculate a little bit as well. But Didak, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. It was great to have you. And I, I, I can speak for me too, I know, when I say we're really looking forward to, to the book coming out.
1: Thank you so much,
2: this was, this was great.